The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Thursday and this is George Hook with The Right Hook on News Talk. Here's a digest of some of the items we had on the programme today. Ireland's abortion laws are back in the spotlight. The United Nations Human Rights Committee says that a woman was subjected to cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment. This is a case where a woman carrying a fetus with a fatal abnormality was forced to choose between carrying it to full term or travelling abroad for an abortion. I'm joined now by a member of the United Nations Human Rights Committee, Sarah Cleveland. Sarah, welcome to the programme. Thank you. What was cruel, what was inhuman or degrading about what happened? The committee found that Amanda Mellet was already in a very highly vulnerable position when she found out that her fetus was going to die. And then she was forced to choose between having an abortion abroad or carrying it to term. And this imposed a series of hardships on her that exacerbated her trauma and grief. She was denied the protection and coverage of the public health care system. She had to raise the money to travel abroad at personal expense. Her public physicians did not provide her with information about her health care options. She was denied post-abortion and bereavement care that would be provided in Ireland to women who continued the non-viable pregnancy. And perhaps most traumatically, she received the remains of her aborted fetus the ashes by mail, by courier, unexpectedly three weeks later. So the committee found that collectively this uh, resulted in the infliction of cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment on her. The basic fundamental point is that the obligation to travel means that a series of hardships are imposed on women in her circumstances, including uh, the fact of having to delay access to abortion services which would not be um, inflicted on women if such services were available in Ireland. Um, But let's take the issue of abortion. We're democracy and we're members of the United Nations for quite a long time now. Um, and, And a number of times the Irish people have voted freely in uh, referendums uh, against abortion on on demand or indeed in the case of fetal uh, abnormalities, the Irish people have voted against it. So in essence, the Irish people are in the dock here, not the Irish government. Well, the government is the party to the human rights covenant. It's the covenant on the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights that the Human Rights Committee is responsible for overseeing. And it's the government that has the international legal obligation to comply. You know, human rights obligations are not the matter of public opinion polls. In fact, human rights are most needed to protect people whose rights won't be protected by a majority. But the, the, so the United Nations, every, every member of the United Nations, I guess there's over 100 of them now at least, um, countries, every single country must provide abortion on demand. Is that the position? Well, the case involved a woman who was pregnant with a fetus with a fatal impairment, Right. And the committee has very consistently taken the position that laws that criminalize abortion in such cases 
are not consistent with the human rights obligations under the covenant. And that's the issue that was decided here. But, I mean... (laughs) It's, I mean, I have views, but these aren't personal views. I, I have a problem, though, on a democratic level of being, of being a member of the United Nations. My country is a member of the United Nations. It's been, uh, it, it's been a democratic country for the best part of a century. And uh, the people have said, we don't want abortion. And the United Nations is telling us, you must have it because we're telling you you must have it. I find that difficult. I mean, uh, have you have you sort of said to Saudi Arabia, um, you know, what about their laws? Or I mean, uh, I'm I'm not an international expert in jurisprudence, but like, have you have you wandered around the globe telling uh, despotic nations to uh, front up? Well, of course. I mean, the Human Rights Committee every day tells states that laws that they have in place are not compliant with their human rights obligations. But they continue the, the to be The majority of a population might approve use of torture uh, as a counterterrorism technique, but that wouldn't be consistent with the country's human rights obligations, and the committee would be obligated to say that. No, but the, the, but the point I'm trying to make here is, is that you can be outraged or upset about it, but if, you're not, but if nothing actually happens as a result... So what? So in other words, what happens next? Is Ireland now going to change its laws on abortion because you have told them? Well, interestingly, the Minister of Education this morning in the Parliament expressed some sympathy with the views of the committee and said that a process um, may be put in place to review Ireland's position on these issues. So I think that the, the committee's position could help push the ball forward um, in the public discourse on this issue in Ireland. You see, what I, I find difficult, for instance, you talk about, like, support services. Only last week on this programme, uh, I'm, I'm talking to a psychotherapist who heads up a group that offers counselling services to men and women who are uh, uh, planning an abortion or recovering from an abortion, if that's the right word, or whatever. So, uh, Counseling services would appear to be available. Um, the other thing, uh, you know, when you talk about cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment, um, the, 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 the abortion took place 60 minutes away in an airplane, which cost presumably somewhat in the region of a, a hundred euro uh, to fly there. Um, where, where, what... I just I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to stay in the middle, but because but words like cruel, inhuman, and degrading are words that I have a problem with. So on the on the latter point, um, I should point out that the committee also found that uh, the Irish government had violated Ms. Mellet's right to privacy and also treated her discriminatorily. And the record in this. Uh, particular case indicated that she had to personally raise and expend 3,000 euros in order to um, in order to travel to the UK to secure this abortion, that she and her husband had to return from the UK back to Ireland after only 12 hours there because, or 12 hours after the abortion, because she couldn't afford to stay any longer and she was still bleeding and weak and lightheaded when she had to return. And so this, one of the findings of the committee was that this regime 
de facto discriminates on the basis of socioeconomic status in Ireland in that women who have access to resources and are physically and otherwise able to travel can access abortion services abroad, but that that is in reality denied to women who are in a less secure situation. I, I, I have to be very careful here because I don't want to appear crass or unsympathetic or anything else because, because we're talking about a single person. Um, however, we, have to, we do have to take it in the round in that um, in all aspects of health, only this morning we, we produce a report here in Ireland that you're more likely to die of cancer if you're poor uh, than, than if you're wealthy. So there has always been, sadly, and, and the United Nations or Karl Marx or anybody else has still to work out uh, the issue of, of the, 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 the sad difference between people who have and those who have not. Right, but the point here is that Ireland's public health care system and insurance covers women who decide to continue carrying the fetus even though it is going to die. But women that choose based on you know, medical advice to terminate the pregnancy are denied coverage uh, of the health care system. They are not covered by public or private health insurance. They can't receive the advice of their public health officials. Um, and have to travel abroad, so it's quite different from the cancer case. No, of course, because because abortion is not legal in Ireland. I mean, so an insurance company or a doctor or anybody else can hardly um, give advice, and this has always been the problem for Ireland, which is uh, can't give advice about an illegal medical procedure. That's a major problem for this country. I'm not saying A or nay. I'm, I'm, I'm simply saying that at which point does a sovereign nation, is a sovereign nation allowed to make its own laws? But it's not actually illegal. The point is that there's a fundamental contradiction in the Irish system in that it criminally prohibits abortion domestically. But it is legal to travel to another jurisdiction. And healthcare providers actually under the Abortion Information Act are legally able to provide information about uh, the availability of such services. But there's so much unclarity regarding what information they're able to provide that the Abortion Information Act itself has a chilling effect on the ability of women to receive this information. Now, um, the, it, people listening men or women, because everybody's involved in this, um, they, they, they will wonder, um, there will be people obviously who are pro this, there are people then who of, of, of conscience or religion or otherwise um, have a problem with abortion, whether the child, whether the fetus has a fatal abnormality or not. So, and, and our referendums have proved that there is roughly a 50% divergence in opinion in this. So where does the United Nations stand when, and, and forgive me, but I'm, I'm, like, I'm using the words and I'm not trying to be emotive, where you then turn around to 50% of the pop, the other 50% of the population and say, tough luck about your uh, beliefs, religious conscience or otherwise, we're going to tell you what to do. How do you, how do you put that together? Well, this gets back to the initial point about 
uh, human rights protecting minorities and minority interests and not being the subject of public opinion polls. The committee's opinion in this case is fully consistent with the approach it has always taken regarding regulation of abortion in general and also the approach it has taken over the years to Ireland's highly restrictive criminal laws specifically. So Ireland appeared before the committee in 2014 for periodic dialogue, and the committee indicated that Ireland needed to revise its laws, including potentially the Constitution, in order to ensure that abortion was available, um, at least in certain cases, including the context of fatal fetal impairment. So, and and I, I suppose there's cause for, for, I don't want to call for an opinion, because I understand you're part of a committee in the United Nations. But in essence, are you saying that because there's a possibility of a repeal of, of the Eighth Amendment of our Constitution, where you talk about changing Constitution, do you think, therefore, that the United Nations would be satisfied if Ireland were to repeal its laws in relation uh, to the carrying of a fetus with a, a fatal abnormality, but still had uh, abortion as an illegal procedure in all other cases? Well, I can answer that easily because, among other things, the committee has also said that um, amor- abortion must be available in cases of rape and incest and yes, serious I get risk that. to the yes. health of the woman. Yeah, just sorry. That that would all, I think, be in an all-embracing kind of referendum. What I'm thinking of, who somebody who says, as, as happens in Britain today, in terms of, of pregnancies, a very late in term, as we all know. Um, I just want an abortion, thanks very much. Abortion on demand, in other words. The committee has never said that abortion cannot be regulated, but it has said that abortion cannot be regulated in a way that violates the human rights of women. Okay, that's very clear, and and thank you for being so clear. Sarah Cleveland is a member of the United Nations Human Rights Committee and was speaking to me there from Venice. I would imagine that 53106, the text number, is already chattering away on the computer (laughs) screen. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Mark Harold, who is a clinical psychologist. He's written a book, um, which I might buy next week, because, of course, I have another grandchild due on, on July 12th, author of Parenting and Privilege, Raising Your Child in an Affluent Society. But I've asked him to pop in about procrastination. Before we procrastinate, uh, and I put off the, the difficult question, um, the... the uh, you, there is a suggestion like that procrastination is what? It's some kind of clinical imbalance? or Not at all, George. So we, we all procrastinate. Um, uh, some more than others. Well, exactly. And, and the estimate is that about 20% of us are chronic procrastinators. But the rest of us all procrastinate, whether it's uh, something to do with the job. I mean, my one is I know I should get my eight hours sleep, but I'll sit there and watch... 
say yes to the dress curvy brides on, on the television or, or Judge Judy just because I'm just sitting there and being lazy knowing I should be getting my sleep. But, but the reason I asked you really was, I mean, the Brexit, you know, I've got another 24 hours to, to register to vote in the Brexit referendum. Oh, I thought that was up already. Yeah, well, they've given them another 24 oh, hours, okay. right? So, like, they've had three years to think about this. <laughs> yes. And now it would appear there's a ton of people haven't actually done it. So they're giving them another 24 hours. I mean, if you believe in procrastination, the people you're giving 24 hours to do it will need another 24 hours to do it. So this will be a never-ending cycle. Exactly. That's it. And procrastination is a habit. That's one of the sort of uh, the formations of, of procrastination or one of the sort of the, the expressions of it is that it just becomes a habit. And that's probably the constituency they're uh, uh, pandering to there in deciding to sort of give them another 24 hours. Because an awful lot of us are procrastinators. And as I say, 20% of us are chronic ones. But you're a psychologist. I mean, I come in to you and I say Doc uh, I I procrastinate and like I mean I'm telling you the truth now about me like yeah. I procrastinate about everything like any, everything that's difficult do you know what I mean like if I notice a phone call coming in from some fella about something that I'm really find difficult I just won't answer the phone like you mm. know I put my head under the pillow and hope the thing goes away and then of course with every succeeding day he gets more upset and the problem gets bigger yeah, that's that is the most common form of procrastination. Yeah, I mean it's usually a fear of pain or stress, or in in the case that you're talking about, well, if I answer the phone, I potentially I'm going to be caught up for the next sort of day or two in some problem or some issue. Now the reality is, George, that most of what we sort of fear actually never happens. So the re- for all us procrastinators out there, all of your listeners and yourself we're better off biting the bullet and going ahead and sort of uh, facing the fear, you know, challenging it and saying, no, I am really going to do it. I'm going to get on top of this. Uh, But there is another aspect, and I think this is quite contemporary. I know you're sort of referring to sort of your time and and the old days, but uh, or in previous sort of generations. But the amount of technology around today, there are so many distractions. There are any number of excuses for us not to get on with the job. And there's various studies that show that we rarely spend more than 20 minutes on any given task because we're either checking emails, we're checking Facebook, you know, we have to do, do check Twitter, you know, we have to, you know... Uh, listen to George Hook on the radio. All right, but I'm in awe of people. And I mean, I remember when I was coaching in America with Eddie O'Sullivan, you know, um, we'd know there's a call coming in from the fella in Arizona, right? And like, it's a problem. And of course, George wouldn't answer the phone. Like, so it'd be going ding, ding, ding. Eddie was the exact opposite. Like, didn't matter how big the problem was, he picked up the phone or he walked into the guy's office or whatever it happened. He he took it on head first. I'd put it off forever. I work with people now and I'm in awe of them. Uh, like I say, oh, what am I going to do? I was supposed to interview Dr. Harold at half five and, and we were, he were double booked. I can't ring him and tell him and I'm, I'm, I'm farting around for hours. And then I work with people who just pick up the phone and say, Dr. Harold, we're double booked. We can't do that. I, but I can't do that. I'm physically, mentally or whatever the word is, incapable of doing that. Well, George, 
I think you need to sort of learn a few of the assertiveness skills. That's the first skill being how to say no. Because it's amazing. One of the big procrastinations that we actually do is that we'd actually do a job for somebody else before we'd actually do a job for ourselves. We often will do that. We'd be more motivated for whatever reason. I think it could be a lack of confidence in ourselves, maybe a lack of self-esteem. But we need to give ourselves a kick up the backside and say no in in a lot of circumstances. Yeah, but it might be a bit late in my life, but I still need help like so, you know, a fella rings me up and says, George, we want you to speak at the rugby club dinner. But I really know I promised to take Ingrid out to dinner that night. So I say yes to him. But then I'm terrified to tell Ingrid. So suddenly about a half an hour when she's all dolled up, lipstick on, I suddenly say to her, listen, eventually I have no choice now. And I have to say, sorry, we can't go to dinner. I mean, what, I mean, and there's tons of people like me. Oh, definitely. But we have to make that determination that we're going to put ourselves first. One of the things I would teach you in that circumstance is always have a line such as when somebody rings you looking for a favour, say to them, I'm going to have to check my diary and I'll get back to you. So you're buying a little bit of time. But I'm procrastinating. I just say yes. I mean, no matter what they do, I don't even look at the diary. I just say yes. And then I look at the diary and say, oh, shoot, that's two yeah. on the same night. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that's exactly what you're, you're literally jumping straight in and one of the things we all have to do is when we're put under that kind of pressure is buy a little time uh, in order to, to sort of determine what is the thing that we actually want to do because you end up actually being quite stressed if we oh, sort of the say yes The stress is unbelievable Yes, it's uh, everything so you need to be buying a little bit of time I mean I got a pill for this Okay. Well, I mean, to me, the best pill is getting a bit of exercise, getting good sleep. um, And, uh, you know, you're going to be thinking more clearly. Uh, Watch the caffeine, you know, uh, as well. And and then you're actually going to think a lot more clearly. But here's another thing just to remember as well, that it's very often in order to avoid procrastination, like uh, putting, you know, things off, it's very important to have a plan, but not just have a plan, but a very specific plan. So if you have a plan at the start of your week that you're bringing your wife out to dinner on Tuesday night then how did you know I bring her out on Tuesday night oh, see I'm a psychologist George <laughs> <laughs> I read minds but it has to be specific so and then we have it clear in our mind that you know I'm actually going to do this it's like saying oh I'm going to eat well tomorrow that's just not going to work because we can very easily then procrastinate on our eating whereas we have to say you know at you know, eight o'clock. I'm having my porridge. At you know, eleven yeah, o'clock. Okay. I'm having my apple. And so you actually have to be very but specific this, about. But this, I can remember like the first monumental procrastination of my life. Like I was eighteen years of age, working in an insurance uh, company. And uh, I didn't want to do the insurance exams. I wanted to do accounting exams. And I kept telling them, I kept telling them I was going to do the insurance exams until the day the exam dawned. Like, so that's the first one. I was 18. So I've been doing it now uh, for 60 years. Yeah, well, it's now incurable, surely. No, it's not too late. It's very important that we set our goals, both, you know, short, medium and long term goals. But having a plan, having a specific plan. And here's an interesting one, George. Say we have a, a task that we want to complete. 
I'm reading a, a terrific book at the moment called Be Excellent at Everything, a guy called Tony Schwartz. He was saying, you know, morning times are our most productive times. He's saying never more than 90 minute chunks, because very often when we're facing a task, we feel overwhelmed and we think yeah. I never get through that. So you schedule yourself the, the 90 minutes. That's when we're at our best. And then we you know rest and renew. But interestingly, he also says midweek is our best, most productive time. So Tuesdays, Wednesdays, we're starting to wind down a little bit Thursday. And I'd be saying your most important tasks, schedule them for the middle of the week and then your more mundane tasks towards the end of the week. The one thing is not to accept, not to say, look, this is just me. I'm always putting things off because at, at the end of the day, it, it, you use up far too much energy in All that. Right. Well, I'm, I'm doing half of it. The most important task of the week is to bring Ingrid to dinner and I do it on a Tuesday. And nothing should come in between that. The other thing, just with this technology, is yeah. you know instead of checking your emails every half hour on Facebook, schedule a time in the evening or a specific time to say that is when I'm going to uh, check my email and not any other time. All right, it's Dr. Mark Harold, clinical psychologist and mind reader. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips MitsubishiMotors.ie Holly and Ross Commons says George have you seen Brendan O'Connor's Cutting Edge on Wednesday night have you been asked on it yet yes and yes is the answer uh, wouldn't miss O'Connor on a Wednesday night for the world and I'm on next Wednesday but now the powerhouse nay the star of Cutting Edge I'm joined by Kira Kelly. Good afternoon, George. Doctor, what were you on about last night? I was just on about important things, really, to be honest. Yeah. I was on about rape culture, and I was on about uh, end of life, and I was on about alcohol, and it was good. It was a very oh, yeah. enjoyable hour. Really optimistic kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I was all upbeat. <laughs> all right, well, we'll stay on a downbeat note. A study published on your, your mag, The Lancet. Yep. Uh, said that offering uh, kids antidepressants uh, is a bad idea. Now, why did why did the Lancet have to do that? Don't we all agree giving antidepressants to children is a bad idea? I think largely we do. And I, I should point out that there are very few children who are on antidepressants. Um, antidepressants uh, are not commonly prescribed for children. Um, it would be quite unusual. And what this study has shown us is is that the vast majority of them offer no benefit to the children bar that of placebo. They found one that gave some benefit, but but that was the only one. Um, and that many of them do cause side effects, including um, some of them increasing the risk of suicide in those children. All right, although well, although no children in the studies um, did commit suicide, I should point out. All right. Now, Dr. Kelly, obviously, like after cutting edge last night, you think you'd have the answer to everything. Well, yeah. But I would suggest, I would suggest, Dr. Kelly, that a lot of children are on some kind of antidepressant. Maybe the drug isn't called an antidepressant, but they're giving kids stuff now in increasing volume. You're right and I'm also right. that They are giving kids stuff in increasing volume because they used to never give kids any stuff. But it's still, George, a, a very small number of children will be treated medically, um, as in with, with you know, um, drugs for depression. I, 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 the good thing is this is there's only a very tiny proportion of children who suffer with depression, although there are some children who do, and, and often 
Um, that's because of unfortunate circumstances that those kids have had a, a tough time and, and they're, you know, responding or reacting to it. Um, but this study is very clear, is, is that there's only one that offers any benefit above placebo. And, you know, we really do need to think and think again yes, before we prescribe. I, I agree. But, but if you... And you see, I have to, no matter what, I'm still a product of my age, yeah. you know. Yeah. Maybe it was worse when a kid was put in the back of the class and told he was stupid, right? Um, uh, whereas really what he was was dyslexic or he just suffered from something else. But we are also surely discovering a whole pile of things which, which you know, a kid now who doesn't do his homework um, can point to about four or five different medical conditions uh, which mean that he can't do his homework, whereas really he's lazy. No, so no, therefore... No, no. <laughs> On a second, George. Well, for a start, dyslexia is is, is a condition. I didn't say I said in, in dyslexia. Yes, but there's all kinds of things like and they've ADD. Tons you're talking about an ADHD and these types. Of things. Yeah, yeah, there are there yeah. ones with D's in them. There yeah. seems to be well, a lot ADD of D's. and there's ODD and there's all, there, there are. But those things aren't depression, George, and, and they're not diagnosed as depression either. And nor are they in the main treated with any kind of antidepressant, although they may be treated with some types of medication. Um, I know what you're saying, and, 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 and there is a grain of truth in what you're saying in that we don't want to over-label our children, over-medicalise our children. Yes, That's and true. we are. And but, we are. But also what you went on then to say, though, was, ah, these kids are just lazy. And that part of the problem, too. For many, many generations, children who had genuine challenges yeah, sure. to learning were diagnosed as things like difficult or bold or lazy, which is which is a falsehood as well, because that wouldn't be the case. There had to be fellas in my class, I suspect, in in school who probably had a medical condition and we thought they were just stupid. Yeah. And things like dyslexia are most unfortunate because children come away feeling inadequate and feeling like they have something wrong with them or that they're stupid. And they're not at all, but they no. have a specific challenge that needs to be facilitated. And that, so those are positive things. The fact that we're able to identify those things, George, and intervene in them and help kids, those are positive Look, things. But Dr. Kelly, Dr. Kira Kelly is my guest. Um, uh, Kira, there is a point, though, that the... The pharmaceutical industry can only make profits if it sells a lot of pills. So the the, the pharmaceutical industry is motivated by two things. One, uh, making us better by whatever we suffer from. Uh, and two, however, uh, getting us to pay for pills to take. I, I, I would imagine the pharmaceutical industry is largely motivated by the latter. It's Correct. A, it's about profit. Yeah. And, and the, they're in the business of trying to make us better, but only because that makes a profit for them, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah, so therefore, they must be in the same... I mean, I'm not necessarily... I'll though I probably am, comparing them to the smoke industry. Like, they're thrilled if a bunch of, if, you know, if people think we better give pills to kids. Yes, I, I imagine that their raison d'etre is to, to sell their products because that's the same as any business. I think what we need to do as physicians is to say, well, look, there's very little, if any, indication for using this clatter of drugs because they're, they're, they're not doing anything more than placebo. Um there is the one drug, fluoxetine, was was found to be relatively safe and relatively effective, but that was the only one. And so, what that this is a kind of a shot across the bow to the medical profession to say, think twice before you prescribe something for a child, because the chances are it may be of no benefit and it may in fact do harm ahead. So there may be there may be risk 
without benefit. And, and that's the problem for, 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 for prescribing for people, because ideally what you do is yes. do no harm as a first tenant of medicine. But um, the, the, the situation here, though, nevertheless, is that we do know there is overprescription. So uh, the Lancet may be doing us a favour in saying to doctors who may well be prescribing um, that it's doing no good. But then secondly, how many times when doctors write out a script and every person who takes a pill should know there is a side effect. It may not actually kill you, but it's a side effect. So, well, like, the, the fella says to you, listen, here's a great painkiller. You take the painkiller and there's codeine in it, and then you discover that you spend half your day on the toilet. Well, because exactly. you're, so, no, 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 you're right. And there are very few drugs, George, that have an effect that don't have a side effect because the, the, the sort of specificity of any drug is, is, is usually challenged by some side effects. So, so it's quite difficult to find an effect without a side effect. Um, the thing is this is... is it's the role of the physician to prescribe in a way where the benefit outweighs the risk. So that's why you should be balancing up the side effects versus the effects in your head. GPs, for example, wouldn't be prescribing antidepressants for children that wouldn't be, wouldn't be allowed to for a start. That would be child psychiatrists and only child psychiatrists would be prescribing these things. And I think that this will be absorbed by the psychiatry profession now and they will be sort of looking at that specialty of medicine will be sort of saying, OK, there's very little justification for using these drugs now. And they'll be needing to look at other types of things like talking therapies, behavioural therapies exercise therapies, family therapies, and all those types of all things right. now for children. Now, given that you lectured me about dyslexia, let's talk depression for a moment, though. Okay. It's a serious question. Um, depression in children in 2016 is an absolute multiple of depression in children in 1956, okay. right? I accept that. Right, 66 is better because it's half a century. Okay. There, are two re- there could be two reasons. One is better reporting, better analysis, yeah. better investigation. Or the other could be that the way children are currently being, the life that current children live in the 21st century leads to depression. Yeah. I think it's very possibly both of those things. I think that there, there is a, a societal malaise that could be affecting children in a way that maybe wouldn't have back in... 50 years ago and maybe communities and families and society was a bit more cohesive so 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 that may be an element of it but i certainly think how we diagnose things now is very different to how we diagnose things even more recently than 50 years ago i know certainly when i was a child that i don't think i had ever heard of any other kid being depressed you know i don't think it was on our radar at all whereas uh, nowadays we would be talking occasionally about children being depressed. I should still stress that it's a very tiny number of kids, George, we're talking about. Is it, though? Yeah, no, it really is. I, I have no. I, I have a practice. There's about 10,000 patients attend my practice here. It's a four-doctor practice. We don't have any child, to my knowledge, attending this practice who is currently on medication for depression, any child. All right, well, that's really good news. Yeah, no, it is. So it is, it is a small number of kids. But this is still a very insightful study because it tells us something about our practice of medicine, that children are being given drugs that probably aren't doing them any benefit whatsoever and therefore 
the sort of the, the psychiatry profession needs to look at itself and say, okay, what are we doing? All right. Uh, general practitioner, uh, Dr. Kira Kelly. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to The Right Hook with George Hook. Well, there's a moment many of us have seen in film where the judge in the Old Bailey puts on his black cap just before he sentences somebody to death. And even in the simple sense of a fictional movie, uh, it strikes a chilling note. My next guest has written an extraordinary book. Um, It's uh, Sentenced to Death. It happens to be his first book. He's a national school teacher. He's Colin Wallace, and he joins me on the telephone. Colin, welcome to the programme. How are you, George? How are you? I mean, for many people listening, of course, there are a ton of people who've grown up knowing nothing about death sentences because it, the last, uh, the abolition of that penalty is almost 30 years ago. Well, there you go, exactly. I suppose, and the actual, the last death sentence that was carried out was 1954. So I suppose it would be outside the lifetime of quite a lot of us. But I suppose when you look at it, 1990, it's not really that long ago. And the last actual person sentenced to death was 1985. So really... Anyone over the age of 30, you may have experienced a death sentence in your lifetime. A death sentence may have been pronounced on someone in this country. Yeah. Now, I mean, we've got tons of death sentences like sort of, you know, famous ones because with Centenary in 1916 and Robert Emmett and, you know, Casement and all this kind of stuff. But many were uh, sentenced to death for the capital crime of murder. Now, why write a book about sentence to death? What prompted you to do this? Well, I just thought, I suppose, you know, every day we wake up, everyone, you could be, you could be, you were all one, one day closer to death. But these people actually had a date in their head. It was always the third Monday after they, after they were sentenced to death and their appeal failed. It was the third Monday after that at 8 a.m. that they were to be hanged. So every day they were waking up literally one day closer to this, you know, this D-Day that's coming ahead of them. I thought it was absolutely terrifying. Now, some of them had committed terrible crimes, don't get me wrong. So in a way, maybe some of them you wouldn't feel, you wouldn't feel too sorry for. But it was just an absolutely terrifying thought. So I wanted to see who these people were, what they did, and what got them into this condemned cell, yards from the scaffold, which was waiting for the day to come where they would be thrown off as hanged. Now, um, of course, the, the many of the most famous deaths um, were in the case of rebels, and 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 obviously in modern times, many of them were shot. But but the 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 actual death penalty for people who would have committed capital murder, um, they were hanged, and there was a hangman, and and there there were a family of hangmen, were there not? There certainly were. Yeah. There yeah. Was ta- Thomas Henry and Albert Pierre Point. Right. And they, every, so every single hanging that was carried out in the Irish state and afterwards in the Irish Republic was by one of the Pierre Points. We never actually had our own hangman, although we did attempt to, uh, to train him on a fellow from Cork. They gave him the alias Thomas Johnson, but uh, Albert Pierre Point said afterwards that he was too weak and he was too grey and he was too afraid and he couldn't actually train him to do it, so they kept bringing the Englishman over to do it. But they were met off the boat... Almost every execution, they were met off the boat by crowds of jeering men and women with signs and shouting things. And Thomas Pierrepoint himself was actually sentenced to death by the IRA because he executed um, Charles Curran, the head of the IRA at the time, during the emergency. 
And the IRA basically said that if we find you, we're going to kill you. So he actually the death penalty placed on him as well. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. I, I mean, he did all these in Ireland, but there weren't that many. But but the actual number of people he hanged would have run into hundreds. Oh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I mean, in Ireland, there was only 29 people hanged, ordinary people, shall we say. Yeah. But in England, I mean, in England, it must have been a multiple of that. You must be talking three or four hundred. Now, the, what about women? Well, women, as regards them, there was only two women hanged in the 20th century in Ireland. One of them was in 1903, and they're actually very extraordinarily similar cases. One of them was 1903, a woman from, called Mary Daly, who was from Kilkenny. Her and her lover conspired that they would kill Mary Daly's husband, so she, she, uh, she gave him alcohol. He drank all day. His name was Joseph Taylor. The husband came home. He got a pitchfork, finished off the husband. But unfortunately for the two of the Mary Daly's children had seen this. They gave the information to the police, the RIC at the time. And there was no sympathy for the two, and they were both jointly hanged. But the only hanging the Irish, the Free State, was in 1925, a woman named Annie Welsh, and she was from Fedimore. And herself and her lover, again, conspired to kill Annie's husband. And it was actually Annie who did the killing this time with a hatchet. It was a very brutal murder. But again, there was no sympathy for them, and there was usually women, all 99% of the time women were reprieved. But in this case, the Justice Minister, who was Kevin O'Higgins, absolutely refused to even think about... Uh, reprieving Annie because he said it was such an awful case. Well, but course, yeah, but it's interesting, of course, you talk about Kevin O'Higgins, Justice Minister. This is a period um, uh, of a difficult time in the uh, the beginnings of the Irish Free State um, when uh, there were a lot of, not necessarily, a, a, you know, civil crime in the case of murder, but, of course, there were also executions of uh, uh, irregulars, anti-treaty forces and all that sort of stuff. And in fact, the anti-treaty forces had a had a, a death sentence on every member of cabinet. So it was a difficult time. But the, the why? By the way, my guest is Colin Wallace. The day job is National School Teacher, but he's written an extraordinary work. Uh, clearly, a, a, a labour of love. It's called Sentenced to Death. And it's his first book, and it's available in your bookshops. Um, the the twenty nine um, hangings that you look at, twenty nine thirty hangings that you look at. Was there any suggestion later that they might have been hanged in error? Well, there was one. I mean, one very famously was Harry Gleason. Harry Gleason was hanged for the murder of his neighbour, Mal McCarthy. Mal McCarthy was a woman who had several illegitimate children, fathered by several men in a small locality called New Inn. Tipperary, and basically she was shot dead. There was probably numerous suspects. But Harry Gleason was found to have committed, well, according to the Guardian at the time, he was found to have committed the murder. But the, ev- the evidence against him was very, very flimsy. And Sean McBride was the solicitor defending him. And Sean McBride always said this was the one case where he was absolutely convinced that his client was innocent. And Harry Gleason went very calmly to his death, but he said, I didn't have anything to do with what he said, and my only wish is that someday I will be pardoned. And in 2015, for the first time ever, the Irish state turned around and they said, we accept that there was not enough evidence to hang this man. Wow. So I suppose okay. even whether you're in favour of the death penalty or not, it's very hard to look past the case of Harry Gleeson because it was such, I suppose it's a real blight on our history that a man like Gleeson, who was clearly innocent, went to his death at the hands of the state. But um, the belief in hanging um, or, or capital punishment, because different countries use different methods, the idea was that it would act as a deterrent to others. Now, looking back, as you've done at these various um, 
capital punishment. Where do you stand on it? I mean, did writing this book, Sentenced to Death, did this in any way change your mind, reinforce your opinion or whatever about capital punishment? Well, I'll give you an interesting... See, I, I, can, I, can read, I can see both sides. I'll give you a very interesting statistic. In 1951 in this country, there was seven murders. In 2011 in this country, so six years later, there were 52. Now, there's something... Now, obviously, look, there's other things involved. There's drugs and there's lots of other things. But perhaps, you know, like in 1951, the threat of the death penalty was still hanging over a murderer's head. I mean, from 7 to 52, that's an absolute explosion. So you do have to ask yourself, was there an element of deterrent? I mean, if you look at a country like America today, which is incredibly violent and still has the death penalty, you would have to say, well, it doesn't appear to be much of a deterrent over there. But in this country, was it a deterrent? I don't know. I'm sure there's an interesting sociological study you could do about why the murder rate has gone from 7 to 52 in six years. But in anyone's language, that's a massive explosion. Now, the, when capital punishment um, was uh, moving, when, when various democracies like Britain and ourselves were moving towards its abolition, it was retra- retained um, for certain crimes, uh, treason being one of them, the yeah. other for shooting a policeman. Now, of the, of the hangings you looked at, were any of those for the killing of a policeman? There were, yeah, there was, there was several, actually. Um, I was looking at the case of Felix McMahon. Felix McMahon shot a policeman dead in a botched armed robbery in Bolton Gas in 1924. And the interesting thing about Felix McMahon was that he was actually an Irish soldier. He was on the pro-treaty side. Like, the death penalty had been retained in order to deal, to deal with the irregulars, to deal with the people who were against the state and who were trying to undermine the new state. But Felix McMahon was actually just... He'd just been discharged from the National Army. And he was supposedly one of the good guys, but he shot Patrick O'Halloran in Bolton Gas. And in fairness, there was no hypocrisy on the coming away government at the time. They dealt with him. They didn't even consider a reprieve. He was hanged for that. And the first case of hanging in the state was William Downs, another man who was in the National Army just during the Civil War. Another man he shot at, a CID policeman from the government. And again, the government, there was no ambiguity there. The government, they hanged him. So even though it was supposedly the death penalty was retained as a way of dealing with the irregulars and dealing with the people who were against the state. Two of the first five or six hangings in the state were actually men who were members of the government's own army. So I thought that was quite interesting. Well, uh, there's a lot of interest in this. What seems uh, a rather gruesome or macabre uh, topic, it actually is a great read of a time uh, when capital punishment existed in this country in the shape of hanging. And my guest, the author, Colm Wallace, the book, Sentenced to Death. Colm, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a million, George.